When I was younger, I was in an accountability group. Now, this group of guys and I, we all loved God, right? We, we wanted to uh, hold each other accountable to the moral standard we thought we saw outlined in the Bible. And we wanted, we wanted to be transformed and we wanted to be conformed to the image of his son. We loved God. And so we got together as an accountability group and we were like warriors for Christ, right? We were going to like do all the things that God wanted us to do. And part of that is we wanted to confess our sins to one another. We wanted to come together and keep each other and hold each other accountable. But what happened is week after week, I ended up feeling discouraged. Week after week, I would come and I would sit at the table and I would think through all of my shortcomings that week. I would sit there and I would think of all the times that I've sinned that week. I would sit there and I would focus in on all of my sin, even the ones that I'd already dealt with, even the ones that I'd already confessed to the people that I'd sinned against. And then I would try to like struggle through all the ones that I couldn't even remember. You know, when they looked at me and they said, Aaron, have you had lustful thoughts this week? Okay, well, I know I have, so that's the answer. But now let me just think through all the different times I had lustful thoughts. And I came to the group, and every week I, would remi- I was reminded of what a failure I was. Have you ever felt like a failure Christian? Have you ever felt like week after week you just fell God? Week after week you just let him down. Week after week, you're just thinking, I am not any good. And everyone in the group felt the exact same way. Week after week, we'd come and would focus in on our sin and we'd come and would realize what utter failures we were. And we were just failure Christians. And we would leave Not encouraged in Christ, but discouraged. And eventually, after enough discouraging weeks, we all began to just lie about our sin. After enough discouraging weeks, after enough beating yourself up because you've just failed over and over again, we just began to cover up our sin. It wasn't that we sinned less. It's that we just began to hide it. Our sin started to go into hiding. Because to come and confess every little slip up, every little moment that we failed, every little sin was just beginning to weigh us down. Eventually the group fell apart. Because no one can live like that for long. No one can live under the weight of sin management for long. And one of the problems with that accountability group is that although we were being transformed by Christ, although God was doing a work in our heart, we weren't talking about the changes that God was doing. There was no, you know, I used to be addicted to pornography, but yesterday I wasn't even tempted. There was none of that. There was no focusing in on how God is actually changing us. The focus had simply become sin management. So instead of looking at the good God had done in our lives, we were stuck on what we were still struggling with. 
And in that kind of environment, your heart begins to condemn you. With that type of thinking, your heart begins to condemn you and you begin to question whether or not you even love God. Whether or not God has actually changed you. Whether or not you're actually even a believer. And your heart starts to say, if you really loved God, you wouldn't sin. If you really loved God, you would be doing more of this and less of that. And you forget that God is working in you. Your heart begins to condemn you. And that is what we will talk about today as we continue our study through 1 John, life is Christ. We're up to chapter 3. He's been, as we talked about, John talks through kind of a spiral. He spirals back around, coming back around to different or to the same topics over and over again. So we're going to see a lot of the same themes over and over again because he's not circular, right? It's not circular logic. It's a spiral. He's coming back to the same principles. And so he's, he started off with talking about light and darkness, how God is light. He's the very essence of light. And if we say that we love, or if we say that we are in the light, but we hate our brother, we're still in darkness. That we can have fellowship with God, that God has invited us into what theologians call the great dance. And then we can be in that dance with God. And last week we talked about identification, because he, he starts to get down into identification. Are you identified with God? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we can be called a child of God? Or are you identified with the devil? And he started to give us ways to identify, and and sometimes we could read the ways to identify and get a little bit confused. So John is writing at this point to give some clarity. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases or what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So last week we kind of walked through this identification process, and we had deci- decided the Uh, that really the identification is not whether you've never sinned. John makes it very clear that we have sinned, that we struggle with sin. Whoever says that he does not sin is a liar. So it's not that you are sinless. The idea is, are you repeating your sin? And we even boiled it down to, when confronted with sin, do you repent or do you justify? 
when, when sin is confront, or when someone confronts you about your sin, do you say, well, I had to. You could see why I had to do this sinful thing. And we even looked at Adam, how Adam, when he was caught in sin, God confronts him, and what does he do? He says, well, it's, it's the woman. And then he goes even one step further. He says, it's the woman you gave me. See, God, if it weren't for you, I would have never sinned in the first place. And he justifies, he rationalizes his sin. But when David is caught in sin and is confronted with his sin, he says, God, it is you against you that I have sinned. He repents. So the question isn't, are you sinless? The question is, are you willing to repent? When confronted with sin, do you justify and rationalize your sin? If you are, if you do that, then you're still in the world's operating system. But if when confronted with sin, you say, you know what? You're right. I have sinned against you, God. And you repent. Then that reveals that you are a child of God. And he closes that last section out with, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So that's, again, the idea of practicing righteousness. It's not that you've never sinned. It's that you're growing in God's righteousness. God has positionally put, made you righteous. Are you growing in that? Are you maturing in that? Nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So this ties all the way back to chapter 2. And once again, it's that spiral, right? that he has not given us a new command. Yet, it is a commandment that we get to see with fresh eyes. So this isn't a new commandment. It's a commandment that we get to see with fresh eyes, and that is love. So Jesus perfectly modeled this commandment for us. So the commandment was all the way from the beginning. And Jesus gives us this fresh look. He lets us see what love truly looks like. So Jesus perfectly modeled this love for us because Jesus is the very essence of love. God is love. It's not that Jesus, like, knows love. It's that he is love. And because Jesus is the very essence of love, God is love. Love is actually defined not by some outside force. You and I can have twisted ideas of what love is. So how do we know what love is? Well, we have to go back to the very essence of love. We have to go back to the very person that defines love, and that is Jesus. So the command goes back before time, before even the creation of the world, that God participated in what theologians call the great dance. Each member of the triune God loving the other. For all of eternity, each member of the triune God loving the other. That each member was putting the other members first. Love, it's important for us to note that love is not just some emotion. And we'll get to hate as well. Hate's not just some strong emotion. Love isn't just having an affection towards. So often in our culture, we, when we say love, we say affection towards, right? So we can say, I love football. Who loves the San Francisco 49ers tonight, today? Yeah? Anybody? No? Some people are for the Chiefs. Some people are like, forget football altogether. I love tacos. I love my children. And I love my wife. Hopefully none of those loves are the same type of love, right? We just have this generic term for love. But when God talks about love, he talks about the selfless, do what's right for the other person no matter what type of love. And so the triune God existing for all of eternity are loving each other in that way. 
And theologians call that the great dance. That God is involved in this great dance. The Father and the Son and the Spirit dancing together in a love that we can't even really comprehend. So they're in, in this great dance. And Jesus modeled this type of love perfectly for us. So the question we asked last week is not are you perfect? You don't sin at all. But are you growing more and more like Jesus? Are you growing more and more in love towards others? God has invited us to the great dance. Are we accepting his invitation? If we are dancing with God, we will grow more and more in our love for others. So last week, closed with John connecting that righteous behavior with love. And before he explains how love is righteousness in action, because love is righteousness in action, he will explain the result of being aligned with the devil. Picking up in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. Oh, sorry. Let me skip down to 12. We do not lie. Or sorry, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So last week we talked about that identification, right? How do you know you're a child of God? Because you're growing in God's grace. Are you being transformed? Here John gives us an example of someone who is of the devil. Who was of the devil signifies that Cain was operating still in the world's system. The world system is of the devil. So if you're operating in the world system of selfishness to the core, you are of the devil. This is important to note, because it's not a systematic problem. Cain didn't kill Abel because the system was bad. Sometimes we hear that people commit evil actions because the system is evil. And if we could just get a more just system, there would be less evil in this world. If our society was more equitable, then people wouldn't steal. But there was no system yet. It wasn't a systemic problem that Cain had to deal with. It was because Cain's heart was evil. The very core of his being was evil. He was selfish to the core. Now, I don't think the word used for murder actually does justice to the translation. The word literally means to cut the throat. So to butcher or to slaughter is better, is a better translation. It wasn't just Abel died because Cain's actions, but that Cain ruthlessly butchered Abel. And why did Cain butcher his own brother? It was because Abel's behavior exposed Cain's heart. Cain had an evil heart. Cain was selfish to the core. And Abel's behavior exposed that selfishness. So Cain was left with a choice. He could step into the light of God and be exposed and let the light change him or he could stay in the dark. To stay in the dark is to cover up your sin, to justify and excuse your sinful behavior. So Cain has to make a choice. Let the light shine or stay in the darkness. And Cain chose the dark. And he goes from just staying in the dark to actually trying to extinguish the light because it was condemning him. So John makes this connection between Cain's exposure and the world's exposure today. 
picking up in verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So Cain hated Abel. Why did Cain hate Abel? Because Abel's actions were righteous. And that righteous action exposed Cain's selfish heart. So why would the world hate us? Well, because they are being exposed. So just like Cain, when the light hits and they don't want to feel exposed, instead of, the light, instead of letting the light expose their wickedness, instead of understanding their depravity, they choose instead to hate those that expose their wickedness. Now I think we need to look at Jesus' earthly ministry. Because last week we talked about how it was the wretched in Israel that were drawn to Jesus. It was the worst of sinners. It was the worst offenders that were drawn to Jesus. It was the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the people everyone looked down at that were drawn to Jesus. So we might ask the question, who were the ones that hated Jesus? Well, we already established that the people who knew they were messed up didn't hate Jesus because they knew they were messed up. They were in the dark knowing that they needed the light. They knew that they needed help. They were addicted. They were stuck in sin. They knew that they were in the dark. They knew that they needed the light. So when the light came, they chased after the light. They actually already felt totally exposed. The world looked down on them. The world knew that they were sinners. Their sin was already exposed. They knew that they needed the light. They knew that they needed the help, the hope that Jesus had to offer. So who hated Jesus? It was the ones who thought they didn't need help. It was the Pharisees who thought they were already righteous. And when the righteousness of Jesus came, and the righteousness of Jesus exposed their filth, instead of running more into the light, saying, yes, I have been so desperate because I knew that I was such a sinner, yes, this light, this righteousness that Jesus has is what I've been craving all along, because I knew I wasn't good enough, because I knew that I had failed. Instead of letting the light expose them and change them, they killed the light. I think that's so important for us to understand. They killed the light because they didn't want that light to expose that they weren't actually as righteous as they thought they were. I once had a conversation with a pastor who ministered in a wealthy area of L.A. And then he decided God was calling him to do a church plant in central L.A. It used to be called South Central L.A. It was located on the very block that Boys in the Hood was supposed to have taken place. It was really funny to me as I typed that into Google Docs. It changed from B-O-Y-S and the hood to B-O-Y-Z-N. I was like, okay, Google Docs, you know. <laughs> but it, it was, I mean, yeah, it was a bad neighborhood. It was filled with people that were hurting, filled with people that just felt hopeless and helpless. And so I asked him, what was the major difference in your ministry in that wealthy area to your ministry in central L.A.? What was the difference? And he said, in the wealthy area, I always had to convince people they were sinners. 
In the wealthy area, these people thought they were good enough. And they, they had this theology that, like, Jesus is nice, and I, I kind of value what Jesus valued, so, so I can kind of line up with Jesus, and I can use Jesus to kind of help control my family. But when push came to shove, most of them really thought that they were almost like doing Jesus a favor. I give to the church. You know, Jesus kind of, Jesus kind of needs me, if I'm being honest with you. Really, they thought that they were good enough. So it was like sermon after sermon I had to preach about how you guys are sinners. How you need Jesus. You absolutely need Jesus because you have, you have sinned against God. But in central L.A., the people knew that they were messed up. They knew their depravity. They knew their struggles. They were struggling with alcoholism, divorce, addiction, adultery. They knew the utter failure that they were struggling with. They didn't have to be convinced that they were sinners. They had to be convinced that there was a Savior who loved them. They needed to know that they could be free from the slavery that sin had brought them to. When Jesus came on this earthly ministry, for his earthly ministry, his righteousness exposed the unrighteousness of those that thought they were good enough. And they killed him for it. My prayer for our church is that we would be a church that would always preach the hope of Christ. That we would see ourselves clearly. And that when the light exposes our failures, we wouldn't run away from the light. But that we would run toward the light of Christ. Because we are desperate for him. He continues in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. So what he's saying is that hatred and murder are reflections of the same heart. This comes back to the Sermon on the Mount that we talked about last semester. Whoever hates his brother is guilty of murder. And the Pharisees thought that, they, that, once again, they thought they were more righteous because they had never committed murder, right? Or at least they had justified and twisted the laws to make it look like they'd never committed murder. And yet in their heart was full of hate. And Jesus sets the standard of like, no, 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 no. Your heart that hates your brother is the exact same heart of the murderer. So we might try to justify our behavior with outward signs of righteousness. And that's what the Pharisees were always doing, trying to justify their behavior with these outward signs of righteousness. I go to church, and I sing the right songs, and I, I say the right prayers. I memorize my Bible every day. Clearly, I'm righteous. And yet, when you have hate in your heart, you have the same heart that a murderer has. So Jesus and John both point out that hate and murder come from the same place. And that is a heart that is selfish to the core. A heart that is still operating with the world's operating system. And then he writes, By this we know, that we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Once again, the idea here is that Jesus gave us fresh eyes to view this commandment. Jesus gave us fresh Lens through which we can view love. To love is to put others first. 
And Jesus shows us how this ultimately plays out. That even when we are dead in our in our rebellion against God, he still paid the price. Even when we were rebelling against him, he became our propitiation. He became our advocate. That is how we can even know to love others. Because we have experienced this heart transformation of love for ourselves. So there are things in life that no amount of description, no amount of study will help you understand. I can remember hearing people, I have two older brothers that had kids before me, and I can remember hearing them talk about their love for their kids. I thought I understood. I would hear them express it, and I thought I knew. But nothing prepared me for the first time I held my first child. I can remember the hospital. I can remember the day. I can remember, of course, I better remember the day. (laughs) But I can remember what the weather was like. I can remember what I ate. And I can remember this indescribable love, a love that I never knew was possible as I held what almost seemed like a stranger. You know, it wasn't like we developed this relationship over time. It was the first time I held him. I I had an intense love for him where I was willing to die for him. You can study the love a father has for his son all you want, but until you experience that, you will never really know. I think that's the way this love kind of works, that we know love, that we have this, this love experience because he laid down for his life for us. So you can study love all you want, but until you experience the life-transforming love that God has for you, you'll never fully understand. Picking up in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So this is kind of where the rubber meets the road of ministry. And that is in these personal relationships. It's in the, it's in the one-on-one of life. So we kind of have this, this ministry philosophy at this church that, you know, Sunday morning is cool. And, but Sunday morning, the service is actually here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So there is ministry that's happening here right now. But where the rubber meets the road of the ministry is when you go home and spend time with your wife and kids. Where the rubber meets the road with the ministry is when you go to work and you have to rub shoulders with non-believers and how you represent Christ at that moment. Or when your friend calls you and says, hey, I just found out my wife's been cheating on me for the last five years. How do you respond? Or maybe it's when a friend confesses to you, look, I have this ugly sin that I've been committing. That's where the rubber meets the road of the ministry. That's what we're equipping you for. And don't get me wrong, Bible studies are great, and I love Bible studies. And I want to see more Bible studies in our church. But Bible studies are not where rubber meets the road of ministry. Bible studies are there to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So that when all of life happens around you, you are prepared to live life with a heart that is open to other people. So we want to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that every single person here knows their assignment from God. 
and then begins to live that out. That every single person here would have a heart that is a, a, a heart full of love for other people. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, I think it's important because he's going to start outlining this, but sometimes we can, see, we can look around and we can see the world's needs and we can almost feel overwhelmed, right? And this is why it's so important for us to know what is God's assignment for me. Every single person here has an assignment from God. And you know what? Your assignment isn't to complete my assignment. Sometimes that's what we do. And, and, and then we think everybody's assignment should be my assignment, So we have some people that participate in Operation Christmas Child. Operation Christmas Child is a fantastic program. I want to equip the people here that participate in that. But I also want them to know that this, that's not everybody's assignment here. So not everybody should or has to participate in that. Bob goes to the rescue mission. Last night he was there. He was preaching the word to to a bunch of people that needed to hear it. That's awesome. I want to equip Bob to do that. One of the things that I love about Bob is he also realizes that's not what everybody here's assignment is. So he's not dragging the whole church to the rescue mission. But hey, if you want to preach the word to a bunch of people that need to hear it, talk to Bob. He goes there once a month. So it's important for us to note. But but what he's driving at here is if you see someone in need, do you close your heart against him? He doesn't necessarily mean are you... Are you doing everything at all times? But do you have a heart that's open towards people? Do you have compassion towards people? But then 18 gives us a call to action. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So this is a call to action. Do you just talk a good talk? Do you talk like you are, are out there loving people? Or do you just like to say that you serve, but never actually do any service? Do you walk the talk? Do you do the deeds? And the only way to live this out is to know your assignment from God. Once again, you can't do everything for everyone. But you can do what God has called you to. Picking up in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So we're walking the walk, we're out there doing the stuff, and sometimes you start to feel almost overwhelmed, right? Because you see every, I mean, how many homeless people do you drive past on your way to church? What happened if you stopped at every single one? You just can't do it. You just can't do all things for all people. And sometimes our heart with so, as, as we grow in grace and we grow in love, our heart grows in compassion for others. And what happens is our heart can sometimes begin to condemn us. We can start feeling con- condemned from our heart. And our heart starts to tell us, maybe you aren't really a Christian. Do you even really love God? After all, if you really loved God, you would do more. If you really loved God, you would be doing more and you would be sinning less. You would be a better Christian if you just loved God. 
And I don't think John is writing to convince them that they're not Christians. He calls them brother. He clearly sees them as fellow Christians. I think he's writing them so that they can have confidence that they are Christians, that they are fellow followers of Christ. So sometimes as our heart hearts become open to all the suffering around us, all the people in need, we become overwhelmed. And we know that we still have struggles with sin as well. And I think back to my accountability group. What did that group do? It gave ammo for my heart to condemn me. Every week, showing up, revealing what a miserable failure I was, confessing how I messed up, Again, and my heart and the other hearts, uh, uh, the hearts of the other members of the group took the opportunity to condemn us. And John is giving encouragement here. Even if your heart condemns you, God is greater. God is greater than any condemnation that we will encounter. In Romans, Paul writes, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Have you put your faith in Christ? Do not let your heart condemn you. God is greater than that condemnation. Just the fact that you are wrestling with this, I think, actually reveals that you belong to God. Those who don't belong to God don't even care. They've hardened their heart to all these issues. They've hardened their heart to any ministry. They can see someone who is in need, And they can just harden their heart. They can sin and never feel convicted. So John is saying that this condemnation of your heart is actually a sign that you do belong to God. And God is greater than any condemnation. He already paid the price, so you no longer have to feel this condemnation. And then he picks up in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, We have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So if our heart condemns us, He is greater than our heart. His love is greater. If we begin to to let our hearts weigh us down, He says, stop. I paid for that sin. I made you righteous. I made you holy. Don't let your heart accuse you anymore. I think here John is painting an attitude that we should have. Instead of constantly counting our sins, instead of constantly rehashing sins that that God has already forgotten. Instead of rehashing how we've constantly messed up, how we're constant failures, we should have no condemnation before God. Instead, we should have confidence in Christ. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. God has invited us into the great dance. He has invited us into an intimate relationship with Him. And He has provided the way so that we can come before Him with confidence. But it's very difficult to have an intimate relationship with someone if you're just waiting for that person to to tell you how you let them down. If you just think that that person is always waiting around to bring down the hammer, if you think that that person is just waiting around to tell you what a disappointment you are to them, if you're just waiting for all the criticism to be unleashed on you, 
You won't dance. You don't dance with someone you think is just out to get you. And unfortunately, many Christians have that thought about God. Many Christians have that opinion about God that He's just waiting in in judgment, waiting to condemn you, waiting for you to slip up somewhere, someplace, sometime, so that He can bring the hammer down and tell you, I always knew you were a disappointment. You let me down again. And what John is saying here is that you have been invited to the great dance That God paid the way. That He has changed you. That He has made you a new creation. And He's done all of this because He loves you. You are His original artwork. You are His masterpiece. So draw near to Him with confidence because He loves you so much that He came and He paid the price for all of your failure so that you no longer have to live in that fear and that shadow. Picking up in verse 23, and this is the commandment that we have in the name of, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit who he has given us. So notice the command here is one command. He says, and this is his commandment. That's singular. But then he gives us what sounds like two commandments, to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. I think he gives us this, he makes it singular because he's saying these two actually can't be divorced. Now he uses the entire title of Jesus, right? It's not just believe in Jesus, it's not just believe that Jesus is the Christ, it's believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is a reference to who Jesus really is. He is eternal. He is part of the eternal Godhead. He is the Messiah. He is our Savior. So it's to recognize the eternal holy God came to this earth to pay the price for your rebellion. At one point, you were in rebellion against God. You shook your fist against God and said, forget you, God. I want to do things my way. And that created a separation between you and God. You were created to be in relationship with God, but when you rebelled, you were separated out from him, and your penalty was death and slavery to sin. But because God loves you with such a great love, and he's invited you to the great dance, he paid the way for you to come back into relationship with him, that you could be fully restored. So he came, and he died on the cross to restore you and me back to himself. And that when you put your faith and trust in his work on the cross, at that moment, Christ changes you. He enables you to live a selfless life, a life of love. So the commandment is to believe, upon, and upon that belief, you are transformed. Upon that belief in his son, he makes you capable of loving with a selfless love. I think sometimes we get confused about how to live Moral, upright lives. We think we need to change in order to be accepted by God. We think that we need to be better in order for God to love us. And we get confused about who God is. We think he's this this being that's just waiting to punish us and to discipline us and to, to show his disappointment in us. So we work hard at changing ourselves. We get into accountability groups. 
We start focusing in on our behavior. And we become so focused on sin management that we don't realize Jesus has done the work for us. Last week we learned that Jesus is the agent that changes us. Jesus gives us a new heart, a heart that enable us, enables us to live according to our calling. If your heart condemns you, God is greater. So we can have confidence with him. We can have confidence in front of him because he is the propitiation. He paid the price for our sin. And not only did he do that, but now he is our advocate standing next to us. And when there is a holy God that says, wait, are you worthy? Jesus stands next to us and he says, yes, he is worthy. I know because I paid the price. And God says, "Uh, can you join the great dance? And Jesus says, yes, he can join the great dance. And I know because I paid so that he can join the dance. God has invited you to join the great dance. To experience love that no one else can experience. To experience an almost unexplainable love. Will you dance? Oh Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it changes us. That it transforms us. And we thank you that although we were in rebellion against you, you came and you paid the price so that we wouldn't have to. A price that we couldn't pay even if we tried. And you no longer look at us thinking, when will they fail next? And we don't have to be worried about thinking, is he just a father that's always going to be disappointed in me? But we can come before you in confidence because you have made the changes, and you have invited us to dance. We pray that we would be a church that would be so excited to dance, to dance in the light of you. In your name we pray.